0: host today is July 8 2023 this is the big book study um, of alcoholics with alcoholics of alcoholics anonymous my name is Veronica Cole and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater I will be your host for today's study our okay. co-hosts are Tanya G and Nancy J for Q&A if you have any questions during the meeting um Please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts by private message in the chat function. That chat function will be disabled until five minutes before the questions and answers section. Please note that the speaker Harlan G will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answers section which follows will not be recorded. We ask if you can please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also please turn off your video if you are exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen for any reason. During the meeting, we will post the link to our seventh tradition. This money will go toward the cost of our Zoom account, the cost of uploading our recordings, and we'll also send contributions to our intergroup NWSO. We will post a link to the previous week's recordings, and these are available by clicking in the link that will be posted in the chat box. I will now turn the meeting over to the one and only Harlan G.
1: Thank you, Veronica. Thank you very much. I'm so honored to be here. I'm not in Scottsdale. I'm in Arlington Heights, Illinois. I'm about uh, one minute from the famous poop park in Arlington Heights, Illinois. Uh, And I'm very glad to be here this morning. Um, We are in the chapter two wives. And when we get rolling, we're going to be on page 106. The paragraph that begins, perhaps at this point, we got a divorce, and that's where we're going to start. But before we get rolling, as is my practice, I want to just sort of uh, talk about what we've covered so far in this chapter, to Wives. And Lois Wilson held a lot of ill feeling for a very long time about not being able to write this chapter for the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, Bill wrote this chapter. The urban legend has it that Lois wrote it, but that is not true. And the reason that Bill wrote this chapter is he really wanted the book to be for alcoholics and by alcoholics. But what he did that's inconsistent, he did something that's pretty inconsistent. He had a story put in the first uh, edition of the big book. And the first edition of the big book uh, included a story, The Wife of an Alcoholic. And he originally tried to get Ann Smith to write this story. And the reason that he wanted Ann Smith to write this story was not anything but a political move. He wanted Ann to get behind the writing of the big book, which she was not necessarily behind. Uh, A lot of people think uh, when they think of the big book, a lot of people when they first come in, they think, oh, Bill and Bob wrote the book nothing could be further from the truth. Bob Smith, Dr. Bob, had very little to do with the writing of the big book. He was sent chapters as they were written for his perusal. He made certain notes. He made certain uh, comments on the chapters. But by and large, the people that wrote this book, by and large, were Hank Parkhurst, and Bill Wilson, but Bill Wilson did 90% of it. And Hank Parker wrote the chapter to employers and he had input in some of what Bill wrote, but most of what Bill wrote was a uh, product of what Bill thought and what Bill wanted to put in the book, not what anybody else wanted to put in the book. And he was very, very adamant about that. But anyway, to this day now, Ann, uh, Ann Smith passed away prior to Al-Anon being formed. And an, a woman by the name of Anne Bingham and Lois Wilson started Al-Anon. And to this day, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is not conference-approved literature for Al-Anon. And I believe this may be one of the reasons is the resentment that Lois Wilson had toward not being able to write the chapter Two wives. I don't know this for sure, I can't document this for sure, but that is a prevailing theory that Lois Wilson's resentment of the book, not being able to write the chapter Two wives is a part of why the big book is not conference approved. Now don't come away from this meeting thinking, I just gave you a piece of Al-Anon history. I'm giving you hypotheticals based on fact I do not know exactly what Lois Wilson was thinking or Ann Bingham was thinking, but the steps that are used in Al-Anon do come from the big book as the steps in any and every 12-step program come from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I want to talk for just a minute here before we get started, that. and then this is something that is important. When we study the chapter to wives, to the family afterward and the employer, we are in a continuation of step 12. In step 12, which is a three-part step, it clearly says having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, which is part one, we tried to carry this message. What message is that? The message of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous to to uh, alcoholics, and then it's to practice these principles in all of our affairs. What are our affairs? To wives, to the family afterward, and to employers. These three chapters are a continuation of step number 12, so that we can see that this chapter is about the wife, the family afterward. You can include friends. You can include anybody you want and then to the employer, which is very important. So these three chapters are a continuation of step 12. Now, my mother and father had other problems besides compulsive overeating. No doubt about it. My mother had mental and emotional issues. My father had probably mental and emotional issues as well. I never saw my mother and father take a drink in their entire lives of alcohol. There was no alcohol in our home, not because we were opposed to alcohol, not because we were religiously or diametrically, ideologically opposed to alcohol, not at all. We had no opinion on alcohol at all whatsoever in my home. But what we didn't do was we didn't have an appetite to drink. I never saw my mother take a drink. I never saw my father take a drink and I have had about 10 drinks of alcohol, maybe in my entire life. I have not had any alcohol in 46 years. Uh, The last time I drank alcohol, I had a sip of beer on July the 4th, 1976, which is 46 years ago to my reckoning. At 47, maybe, for it'll be, yeah, July 4th. Now it's 47 years, I guess, since I've had any alcohol. And yet when I went to another program, uh, ACOA, I went for a very short period of time. I checked every box they had. And my mother and father, my my house was a battleground my whole life. What do alcoholics like to do? But you don't have to be alcoholic to do it. You can be addicted to anything. You can be a compulsive overeater, a gambler, a drug addict. You can be a raving Al-Anon. You can be a, a whatever. What do all alcoholics, what do all addicts love to do? And we do this so naturally. We do this so naturally. We don't even know we're doing it. We lie. We assign blame. We keep score in our relationships and we fight battles that just don't exist. We lie. We assign blame, which means if you hadn't have done this to me, I wouldn't be the way I am today. We keep score in our relationships. What does that mean? It means I have a scorecard in my head. You did this and you didn't do that. And you did this and you said this. And you you know how that goes. You keep score in your relationships. And that can be very, very devastating to any relationship when people have a scoreboard. It's its just an impossibility. And they also, uh, they lie, they assign blame, they keep score, and they fight battles that just don't exist. Addiction usually means that when we're in the addiction, we're fighting battles against the Democrats, the Republicans, we're fighting battles against this group or that group, we're fighting battles that just do not exist. And we get out out there on our steed in the middle of the battleground, and we have our lance, and we end up running that lance right into a tree, and there's no one else around. And we have been knocked off our horse. And we we are there injured and bleeding, hoping to get help from somebody. And we don't even know what the hell we're doing. We have no idea why we're fighting these battles. But we know that we must fight them and fight them and fight them and fight them. So the bottom line is this, this chapter two wives is going to explore for us if we're open minded to us, the way that we interact with other people. Now we're gonna be talking about this today and we're gonna be talking about this for a while. And even when we're in the chapter of the family afterwards, we are going to talk about this. We think at times, most of us do, that we are only hurting ourselves. That is not true. It is said that the average alcoholic, the average addict, and that would include us, we take seven people to hell with us. What that means is we affect other people. I know I affected my friends. I know I affected my first wife. I know I affected my child. I know I affected myself, obviously, but I know I affected people at my work. I know that I affected other people besides me in my food addiction. The lunacy of my life is that I was only hurting myself. Nothing could be further from the truth. We hurt other people. We affect other people. Many of you who are listening to the sound of my voice, whether you are listening to the sound of my voice on a podcast, or you are listening to my voice on July the 8th, 2023 which is a beautiful Saturday morning wherever you are I hope it's it's beautiful and when we are listening to this many of us are the children of addiction or we are parents or we are spouses or friends of people who are addicted and they are associated with us who are addicted as well and so we bounce off others and others bounce off us and it's very very easy to see if we're sober and we're open to it how this uh, this disease affects more than weight more than our waistline more than the things that we eat or don't eat this is what we do in terms of uh, life we bounce off other people and we affect them and they affect us as well okay Let's go to page 106, the bottom of the page. Perhaps at this point, we got a divorce. This is where we're going to start. Perhaps at this point, we got a divorce and took the children home to father and mother. Then we were severely criticized by our husband's parents for desertion. Usually we did not leave. We stayed on and on. We finally sought employment ourselves as destitution faced us and our families. Now, maybe that doesn't apply to you. Maybe you have been married for a very long time. Maybe it does apply to you. But many of us who have this disease also have attachment disorders. And by these attachment disorders, what I mean is we become overly attached to hopeless dead-end situations or we have an attachment disorder that goes to the other side of the coin. And that is we go through a series of friends, we go through series of of, of love attachments, and we just go from person to person to person to person. And we have a long list of the people that we don't speak to. We have a long list of the people that we don't like. We have a long list of people that we don't associate with any longer. And so it's very difficult for us, unless we're truly doing our step work to look at ourselves because the only constant is ourselves in many, many of these scenarios. Okay, so I'm at the bottom of page 1060. We began to ask medical advice as threes got closer together. The alarming physical and mental symptoms, the deepening pall of remorse, depression, and inferiority that settled down on our loved ones. These things terrified and distracted us. As animals on a treadmill, we have patiently and wearily climbed, falling back in exhaustion after each futile effort to reach solid ground. Most of us have entered the final stage with its commitment to health resorts, sanitariums, hospitals, and jails. Sometimes there were screaming, delirium, and insanity. Death was often near. Now, these are describing very dramatic, very serious situations, screaming and death, and so on. But many of us, like me, there was no alcohol involved. But whether there was alcohol involved or not is not the point. Many of us grew up in a situation that was highly, highly volatile at any moment. Many of us grew up in situations that we were afraid of, that we were embarrassed by, that we were tortured by, that we were in no way, shape or form, no way, shape or form proud of, and no way, shape or form did our situation link up to what we were seeing, not only on television, which was fantasy, but it it wasn't matching what we were seeing in the homes of some of our friends when we were children. There was just no way that our situations could match those situations. And it seems like these people were plugged into something like normality and we couldn't seem to achieve it. Couldn't achieve it as children, couldn't achieve it as adults. And it became more and more elusive as we sensed that there was something wrong. The more we tried to achieve it, the less likely it was that we could touch it until we got into recovery. And then it was just sort of there. Under these conditions, we naturally made mistakes. Some of them rose of ignorance of alcoholism. Sometimes we sensed dimly that we were dealing with sick men. We had had we fully understood the nature of the alcoholic illness, we might have behaved differently. How could men who love their wives and children be so unthinking, so callous, so cruel? There could be no love in such persons, we thought. And just as we were being convinced of their heartlessness, they would surprise us with fresh resolves and new attentions. For a while they would be their old sweet selves, only to dash the new structure of affection to pieces once more. Asked why they commenced to drink again, they would reply with some silly excuse or none. It was so baffling, so heartbreaking. Could we have been so mistaken in the men we married? When drinking, they were strangers. Sometimes they were so inaccessible that it seemed as though a great wall had been built around them. Now, again, I've never been drunk on alcohol in my entire life. There has never been a day that dawned that I was in any way, shape, or form overcome by any desire to drink liquor at all whatsoever. The thought of drinking liquor has never entered my mind. Of the 10 or so drinks that I've had, they were always the product of others trying to get me to drink liquor. And I never liked it. And still, I I don't know that I would like it today. I haven't tried it. And as I say, July 4th, it'll be it's 47 years since I've had any liquor at all. I have no intention of trying liquor. I have no intention of drinking it. Yet these descriptions they describe me and my family exactly. That if you love me enough, why are you so crazy? If you love me enough, why are you eating so much? These are things that I heard and said. I said them as, ch- as a child. I heard them as a parent. I heard them as a, as a friend. I heard them as an employee. I heard them as an employer. I heard them because people did not understand the lack of cerebral reasoning that went into this disease. No one gets up in the morning and says, you know what? I think I'm gonna practice compulsive overeating. I think the best course of action for me is to weigh three, four, five, six, seven hundred 700 pounds. No one gets up doing that, but the situation as such, is that this disease is defiant of any common sense. Common sense goes right out the window when this disease is practiced. And the first, I've said this before, the first casualty of this disease is honesty. It's the truth. And the person that we begin lying to more than anybody else is ourselves. We live in a world of self-denial, of lying to ourselves. And we have this mechanism within ourselves that just lies, lies, lies. And as our waistlines expanded, as our weight grew higher and higher and higher, we sensed that we were going in the wrong direction. When a normal person sets a goal They change their behaviors to match the goal. When an addicted person makes a goal, they change their goal to match their behaviors. I said I wanted to weigh less, but I was eating more. I said that I wanted to be thin, but I acted in a way that got me more and more overweight. So there was no sense, no reasoning, no absolutely no way in this world you could make any kind of cerebral sense out of what i was doing absolutely could not let's go to the bottom of 107 and even if they did not love their families how could they be so blind about themselves why was i killing myself my friends wanted to know and i did not have an answer for them at any level there was just no answer that I could give my friends that would have made one bit of common sense. What had become of their judgment, their common sense, their willpower. Why could they not see that drink meant ruin to them? Why was it when these dangers were pointed out, they agreed and then got drunk again immediately. And so here I was, I would make a resolve that I was never going to eat Twinkies again. I was never going to eat Reese's Peanut Butter Cups again. And there I was doing it. There I was chowing down on these commodities in the face of this promises, resolves, resolutions, never to eat that stuff ever again in my entire life. I'm at the top of 108 These are some of the questions which race through the mind of every woman who has an alcoholic husband or person that's around an addict. We hope this book has answered some of them. Now, this next sentence is something that we are gonna talk about. Perhaps your husband has been living in that strange world of alcoholism where everything is distorted and exaggerated. In the world of an addicted person, Everything is distorted and it is exaggerated. And we see this all the time. We get into recovery. Some of these situations, some of these suspicions, some of these catastrophizations, some of these distortions that we have in our head, they start to clear up because we start to realize the real from the false. And the world of alcoholism, the world of the food is a a world where everything is distorted and exaggerated from the little things becoming mountains to the molehills becoming mountains. And then what else happens? The mountains become molehills. I couldn't walk. I couldn't get out of a car. I couldn't go to the movies because I couldn't fit in the seats. I went on my first date with a girl. I was 35 years of age. I had no life, really. I had my friends. My friends were great. They're still great. But the truth of the matter is every single time I looked at myself, I hated what I saw. I hated myself more and more and more and more. And the only thing that I would do on a daily basis is behave in such a way so as to accentuate my self-loathing. I lied when the truth would have served me better, lied to myself, lied to others. I acted in a way that said, I'm not gonna eat this anymore. And there I was eating it again. But you may say, I'm powerless. Yes, I am powerless, but I wasn't helpless. I could have gotten help. I could have asked for help. I could have knocked on every door imaginable to get that help. And I just thought, well, I'm going to handle this myself. Well, tomorrow will be different. Well, Monday will be different. Well, maybe I'll do this. Maybe I'll do that. Or maybe it doesn't matter anymore. It looked like too high a mountain to climb for me. So God, I just want to die. Please just let me die. I saw no reason to live. I saw no reason. I knew I couldn't live with the food. I knew I couldn't live without the food. What was the point? Why was I here? What was I going to do? And so these questions loomed large in my brain. Let's continue. We're on page 108. You can see that he really does love you with his better self. Of course, there is such a thing as incompatibility, but in nearly every instance, the alcoholic only seems to be unloving, loving, and inconsiderate. It is usually because he is warped and sickened that he says and does these appalling things. Today, most of our men are better husbands and fathers than ever before. I believe that There is something very valuable about the hell that we have gone through. And there are ample evidences in the big book, but this is what I believe. Yes, we now speak the language of the heart. Yes, we are now people in recovery. Yes, we are not people that are destroying ourselves. If you're in recovery, you're no longer destroying yourself. And I believe that the human condition is such You're either getting worse or you're getting better. There is no staying the same. There is no, I'm going to tread water. I'm going to, I'm going to, to tread water. I'm going to just stay where I'm at. There is none there. That's impossible. The only result that I can have on a daily basis in just about any situation in my life is I'm either going to get better or I'm gonna get worse. What do we know about the disease of compulsive overeating? It's permanent, it's progressive, and it's fatal if untreated, but it's permanent and progressive no matter what. So every single day that I wake up, I am getting worse and worse and worse and worse. What's the nice thing about this? The disease is progressive, but the recovery is progressive provided that I'm doing the work necessary to recover. That is the thing that I must keep doing. And I have to keep doing more and different, more and different. Nothing will stay the same at all. So if I keep doing the same outreach calls, going to the same meetings, doing the same things, I am not going to get better. I'm going to get worse because eventually the disease is gonna overtake the efforts that I'm putting forth. And when the disease overtakes me, I am in that strange period of of life, that strange area of life that many of us know. We think we're going to meetings, we think we're doing what we need to do, and yet as the disease progresses along, we find ourselves, thanks, we find ourselves in a situation where we are absolutely bereft of any idea how did we end up in the disease yet again. Mm -hmm. So if we don't keep doing more, don't keep doing different, the thought that I am going to eat a Reese's peanut butter cup is going to be a step up from where I am. It's going to be a step up from where I am because I'm going to be sickened by the resentment the fear, the uncertainty, the guilt, the shame, the remorse, the happiness that these emotions brought into my life. So we have to remember that the disease is progressive, our recovery must be progressive as well. We have to keep doing more, and different and more, and exploring new meetings, exploring new things, sponsoring new people, sponsoring people that maybe we weren't, but we we wouldn't have sponsored five years ago, but yet here they are in our lives. And it's, you know, it really is an awakening. I'm in the middle of 108. Try not to condemn your alcoholic husband, no matter what he says or does. He is just another very sick, unreasonable person. Treat him when you can as though he had pneumonia. When he angers you, remember that he is very ill. So we have to also look inside ourselves. Forget about the husband, the wife. Forget about the other person. Let's again look inside. Let's be more introspective than we are critical. So let's just look inside ourselves. We we want to condemn God. We want to condemn the world. We want to condemn ourselves because we have this disease. Well, why do we have this disease? Well, I love, a lot, I love all the stories in the back of the book, but especially poignant for this discussion is the title of one of the stories. And the title of that story is Because I'm an Alcoholic. Why are you a compulsive overeater? Because you're a compulsive overeater. Why are you as tall as you are? Why do you have the color hair that you have? Why do you have the color eyes that you have? Who knows? We don't sit around and analyze that. Maybe our father or mother had that particular color eyes or color hair. So there's a genetic reason why we have a certain situation. But maybe maybe your parents, maybe your grandparents were completely normal eaters. And all of a sudden, here you are with this disease. What good does it do you to analyze forensically why you're a compulsive overeater when the larger question and the life-saving question is, what are you gonna do about it now? What's your plan of action now? As I tell my sponsees every day, every single day I tell this to them, you've got a fatal illness that's permanent and progressive. It got worse overnight in spite of our best efforts. We are medically unable to treat this. What is your plan of action? What are you going to do? So we have to look inside ourselves because remember there are other things that addicts do. Remember we talked about, we lie, we assign blame, we keep scoring, we fight battles that don't exist. We have to also remember that addiction means usually I will look externally, externally means to other people, places and conditions to settle that on we to settle that, uh, that horrible feeling that I have, and it comes from the self-talk. The way we talk to ourselves is usually unmerciful. And if we talk to ourselves in a very unmerciful way, eventually we're going to end up in a very bad situation because how long can you be excoriated? How long can you be admonished? How long can you have anyone speak to you that way before you just say, screw you, I'm going to eat a Hershey bar. Screw you, I'm going to drink beer. I'm going to drink whiskey. I'm going to take drugs. I'm going to gamble, whatever it is. I'm going to do sex or I'm going to do love addict. whatever that is for, for you or for anyone, because you can only take that for so long. So we learn to speak to ourselves in a very gentle way. I am a better friend to myself today than I ever been to myself. I would never expect that if I treated my friends the way I treated myself, that they would still be in my life because people won't take it yet. We took it from ourselves. And this is a product of that absolute un, unwavering guilt and shame and fear, remorse and anger that comes about Every single day, there I was eating this or eating McDonald's or eating Reese's peanut butter cups, chips, Ahoy, whatever that may be, malamars, doesn't matter what it is. The fact of the matter is I broke promise after promise after promise after promise to the only person that's permanently attached to me. And that's me. That's me. The most unforgiving person in my environment of myself was always me my friends could forgive me but i couldn't forgive myself and that self-forgiveness is only accessible through the working of the 12 steps and if i do not work the 12 steps and show others who are similarly afflicted how to get out of their morass i am going to be unable to tackle this we we read every day or i read every day i don't know about you I read every day pages 60 to 63. What does it say? We had to have God's help. What are they talking about? It, self-will. They're talking about self-will. If I'm going to be free of self-will, I cannot just decide I'm going to be free of self-will anymore That I'm going to be decide that I'm not going to go to Dunkin' Donuts anymore. No, I have to have God's help. And it's okay that I need God's help, because what happens in the aftermath of these actions is I get closer to God and further away from Kentucky Fried Chicken. I get closer to God and further away from isolation. I get closer to God and further away from loneliness, from depravity, from that little tiny life that my addiction would have me live. Now I have I'm working on it. I know there's somebody in Los Angeles that's probably laughing his butt off because he hammers on me all the time. Gotta get a bigger life, gotta get a bigger life. So here we are and we have a situation on our hands where we are expanding our life. Now we have a life that includes people. Now we have a life that includes meetings and we have a life that includes conventions and retreats and workshops and all these other various things. Well, if we have a life that includes that, We are going to be having, we're gonna have a life that includes purpose, that includes direction. Every day that I get up now, I don't have to wonder why I survived the onslaught of this disease so far. The reason that I survived is so I could help the next person. And if I've said this once, I've said this a million times, One of my favorite novels is Moby Dick and Captain Ahab, he chased and chased and chased the white whale. And he thought that by killing the white whale that it would somehow enhance his life. And the very thing that he chased killed him. And this is exactly like my addiction. Now there's a character in that book called Kwekwa. And he says at the end, he says, I alone survived. So I could tell thee. So he survived this encounter with the whale, so that he could pass the story to us. This is exactly the same thing, no different. You survived so far. Now I don't know what level of of recovery you're in. There's 150 of you, 160 of you right now. I don't know where you are in your recovery. Some of you are in beautiful recovery. Some not so much. But what you have is you have a reason for living. And the reason that you have for living is so you could pass this information using the language of the heart to the next person who is suffering tremendously. Many of us are survivors, but not many of us, all of us are survivors, sorry, but we look around and there's my friend Sherry Bolinsky who didn't survive. And there's my friend, this person or that person who did not survive and my friend sherry he was a precious precious jewel of my life she was a wonderful program friend she was a psychologist psychologist when they didn't know what to do with this person or that person they would call her and she would commiserate with them she was beyond uh, degree she had more you know more degrees in a thermometer but she was beyond anything and she got her degrees from the University of Michigan and Northwestern University two very elite uh, universities two very uh, elite uh, you know uh, places of of I almost said places of worship places of knowledge places of, of academia and she died alone at about 400 pounds in her condo on. um on, uh, on Clarendon and Montrose. Clarendon and Montrose is in Chicago, right by the lake, right by the water. And she died alone in there. They didn't even find her for days. And one of the reasons that she died is she would not, she absolutely would not Stop eating until she could do a forensic analysis of why she was eating. And a lot of us are waiting for two things. We wait for willingness. It's not coming. I just checked the bus schedule. I just checked the schedule. Willingness is not coming down your street today. Not going to happen. And the other question we have is not only willingness. They both start with W. The other question is, why am I a compulsive overreader? Why is this so uh, so much a part of me? What do I, ha- and the other question is, what do I have to do now? And many of us didn't like the answer. What you have to do now is you have to work, another W word, work the steps. There is no other way. And when we read chapter three, remember if we read we read well we read chapter three together a long time ago seems like a long time ago but it wasn't it was just the beginning of this year i think what does it say in the last paragraph on chapter three we have an illness that only a spiritual experience will conquer now chances are you're not going to ever have a spiritual experience. I've never had a spiritual experience. Most of you have never had a spiritual experience. You're going to probably have a spiritual awakening. The spiritual awakening is just as effective. It is just as good. It is just as effective at fending off this this disease has a spiritual experience. What is the difference? I'll save Nancy a minute here because she's gonna get this deluge of questions. One of them is what's the difference between a spiritual awakening and a spiritual experience? And the difference between a spiritual experience and a spiritual awakening is this. A spiritual experience is very sudden, very profound. Who can we think of that had a spiritual experience? That's right, Bill Wilson. He was in the town's hospital On December the 15th, 1934, and on December the 15th, the day after he took the other steps, he had a vital spiritual experience as the result of these steps. He said he he recounted this his entire life. There are literally hundreds of podcasts of him talking about how the light came into the room at Towns Hospital and the light filled the room. And he said to Silkworth, have I gone crazy? Is this a hallucination? And Silkworth thought that Bill was different. He saw that Bill had been transformed. And he said to him, no. He said, but you better hang on to this. Anything is better than the way you were. Bill had been drunk since 1917. In 1917, he was a soldier in World War I out of Plattsburgh. And from 1917 to late 1934, 17 years, Bill was drunk, Just about every single day of those 17 years, his marriage, if it was to anybody but a raving Al-Anon, Lois Wilson, I mean, a stark raving Al-Anon. If it was to a normal woman, he would have been single a long time ago. She would have left his drunk butt A long time ago, his drunkenness, his alcoholism cost them every shred of self-esteem that they were born with. Every nickel that they were born with, they lost their home, they lost their dignity, they lost their clothing, they lost everything they had because he could not stay sober more than a day. He had been hospitalized. Oh, that's not true. He was hospitalized. He stayed sober the better, best part of a year, but eventually, uh, I, um, fell off like a ski jump. I was drunk, there I was drunk again. So there he was, drunk again, back in the hospital. And this time he gets a fatal pronunciation from Dr. Silkworth. Silkworth tells Lois, there's nothing I can do for him. He is an alcoholic and we are compulsive old readers, just as fatal, just as permanent, just as progressive. And there's nothing you can do but work the steps. So if you're looking for willingness, it's not coming. If you're looking for why, I'll tell you why. Because you are bulimic or because you are a compulsive overeater or because you are anorexic. Would you like me to tell you again? You've been wondering this since you were a kid. Why am I like this? Because you're like this. I don't have any of it's not because your mother was left-handed. It's not because your father wore a blue shirt instead of a red shirt. It's not because you had lots of siblings or none. It's not because you lived on a street that started with an A like me. I lived on Albany street. It's not because uh, he had uh, you, you, whatever. None of those things. You may think it's because of your mother, your father, your brothers, your sisters, or it has zero to do with that. There are twins. One will weigh 275, one will weigh 180. There are twins, one will be drug addicted, one will not be. One will be alcoholic, one will not be. Same mother, same father, same school, same block, same house, same everything. One is an addict, one is not. Why is because. What is the steps? If you're waiting for willingness, here's how to bring willingness into your life. If you'd like to know the secret of willingness, I'm about to give it to you. You start taking action after action, 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 after action that you do not want to take, nor do you believe in yet. Just based on the fact that we're doing those things and the willingness will come. Willingness is the cart action is the horse stop waiting for willingness to be in front of the cart stop waiting for willingness it's not coming i checked the bus schedule i checked the willingness schedule it's not coming clancy Immslin, who if you've heard me before you know I have several guys I love to listen to their podcasts: Clancy Imislin, Joe and Charlie, Bill Wilson, Sandy Beach. These are guys I loved: uh, Chuck C., Chuck Chamberlain. These are Chuck Chamberlain's a bit religious; he's a little bit out there for some. But anyway, um, these are guys I listen to all the time. What does Clancy Imislin tell us? He teaches us this. When one alcoholic talks to a second alcoholic so that the second alcoholic's feelings of differences begin to subside and he begins to take action after action that he does not even yet believe in, this is the moment when recovery can occur. Want me to say that again? Looks like you do. When one alcoholic talks to a second alcoholic so that the second alcoholic's feelings of differences begin to subside and he starts taking action after action after action, after action, after action, action. this is the moment when recovery can take place. Get off your ass. Start inertia. What is inertia? Inertia is bodies in motion tend to stay in motion. Bodies at rest tend to stay at rest. Get your ass up and moving. Get your ass up and writing, reading, calling your spouse, doing whatever you need to do. Do not try to make this into a home study course. It is not that. When I was a kid, there was no internet. There was no internet. So there'd be books that they would sell, become an accountant at home, become a lawyer, whatever it is, become a seamstress, whatever that is. And they were called home study courses. And this is not a home study course. Yes, the book was written, so you could do this on your own, but let's not try that because it's not as effective as doing it with other people. Get your butt to meetings. It's easier today to get to a meeting than it's ever been. And how do you do that? By doing Zoom. Some of you live in big cities. You know, I was born and raised in Chicago. I went to meetings here for years in Skokie, in Evanston, in Chicago, Swedish Covenant Hospital. The very first meetings ever of Overeaters Anonymous in the area were in a place called Pottawatomie Park, and that is a park field house on the north side of Chicago, and those were the very first meetings here. And then we moved to Ravenswood Hospital. And from Ravenswood Hospital, they kicked us out because some guy named Jerry kept smoking. And they said, please don't smoke on the, don't smoke. any." he wouldn't stop. Finally, they said, we've, we've had it with you guys. We appreciate that you're trying to get your lives in order, but you're kicked out. And we went from Ravenswood Hospital to Swedish Covenant Hospital. And Jerry still was smoking there. And then mercifully, he didn't come back to meetings anymore. So we didn't get kicked out of Swedish Covenant Hospital. And I went to the very first Howe meetings in the Chicago area at a place called First Presbyterian Church in Evanston on Davis Street. And that's where I met Fred Schneider. And Fred Schneider started the Howe program. And he and I were friendly. And he was out of New York. He came from Brooklyn, New York. He was a school teacher and he did what teachers do. He developed a curriculum of readings and writings and that's how your how program got started. Okay, enough history and enough Narish kite. I got off a little bit here. Let's go to back to page 108 in the uh, about three quarters of the way down. There is an important exception to the foregoing. We realize some men are thoroughly bad intention. If you if you are bad intention, this pro, you sober up a horse thief, you got a sober horse thief. Sober up a murderer, you got a sober murderer. We, we, there's only so much we can do that no amount of patience will make any difference. An alcoholic of this temperament may be quick to use this chapter as a club over your head. Don't let him. Don't let him get away with it. If you are positive he is one of this type, you may feel you had better leave. Is it right to let him ruin your life and the lives of your children? Hope not. Especially when he has before him a way to stop his drinking and abuse if he really wants to pay the price. So how do we stop the abuse? We like ourselves. And how do we like ourselves? We can't just will that away. Remember, I read every day. Uh, uh, page sixty-two. We had to have God's help because we're talking about self-will and self-centeredness, and we're talking about all that stuff. Well, we can't just say, "Okay, I'm not going to be egotistical anymore. I'm not going to be dishonest anymore. I'm not whatever it is. I'm going to need God's help. We need. We absolutely have to have God's help. And when you like yourself, you're less likely to commit murder. You're less likely to commit, you know, lying and doing all these crazy things that you really don't want to do. If you're normal, you don't want to do these things. But if you are in recovery and you have purpose to your life, you have you have direction in your life, then you're less likely to do self-harming behavior. Let's continue. The problem with which you struggle usually falls into one of four categories. So we're going to be talking... We're not gonna get to all four categories today because I went too far off into the hinterlands. Sorry about that. One, your husband may be only a heavy drinker. Not my case, I was not a heavy eater. I was a compulsive overeater from the moment I was born. Now I have to tell you a quick story. Last night I was outside in in, I was in Arlington Heights, not too far from Poop Park. And I saw a dog uh, and he was a hunting dog. He was a good hunting dog. He was actually a mix between two really elite hunting dogs. And their noses are just fine-tuned machine. And about 40 feet away, 30 feet away, there was some people that had a bunch of pizza. And this dog was sniffing the air. And he wanted a piece of that pizza. He really wanted a piece of that pizza. And he just couldn't understand, like, where's my piece of pizza? I'm a good dog. I haven't crapped on anybody or bit anybody here. I didn't piss on the floor here. Where's my pizza? And he wanted a piece of that pizza so bad. But anyway, my situation is like the dogs. I wanted that. Malamar I wanted those chips ahoy and I didn't give a damn what I had to do to get them and I didn't care how many years of my life I was going to shit away I didn't care how many decades of my life were going to be spent in 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 torture because of this disease. I wanted what I wanted. And I saw myself in this little dog. He was so cute. He was adorable, but everything was the nose. Everything was the nose. No, I no. he wasn't looking for the pizza. He was smelling that pizza. Like they hone in on prey. They hone in on the quail or they hone in on the animal. Anyway, perhaps he spends too much money for liquor. It may be slowing him up mentally and physically, but he does not see it. There's the denial. Sometimes he is positive he can handle his liquor, that it does him no harm, that drinking is necessary in his business. He, he would probably be insulted if he were called an alcoholic. This world is full of people like him. Some of, will moderate or stop altogether and some will not of those who keep on a good number will become true alcoholics after a while. I have a friend of mine, I saw him the other day. He's a dear friend, I love him very, very much. And he he was a dentist, he's retired. And when he was in college and he was younger, he was very popular with the ladies, very popular with the ladies, and he did some drinking and he did some other things too. He came to a point where he met somebody that was very, very different in his mind from some of these other gals that he had been with. And so right away, the drinking was gone. Right away, the drugs were gone. Right away, all these behaviors were gone. 90 degrees shift around, and he's been a soldier. He's been a Marine ever since. And he's a big scrapping guy. You can see, and he, he is just, he is one, And he may be moving to Arizona, so I'm very excited. But anyway. Uh, not permanently, but he'll be a snowbird. But that's good enough. That's fine. Okay. Anyway, he just stopped those behaviors on a dime, never went back to those behaviors. It doesn't interest him at all. I asked him when I was with him the other day. I said, "Never get up? No, nothing. No, nothing. He just lives a different life. Is he really an alcoholic? No. Is he really a drug addict? No. Is he really a sex addict or a love addict? No when he found what he was looking for everything else went off to the side and so this is different from the constitution that i have i had just the opposite no matter what i encountered no matter how much i knew i should want this and at a conscious level i did want this i went back to the pizza me and the dog i went back to the pizza i went back to those cheeseburgers i went back to you know, whatever Lou Malnati's or Geno's East was my favorite, but I went back to what I wanted because those things could not put the fire out in my soul. Reese's peanut butter cups puts the fire out instantly and effectively, so that the ennui that I feel that 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 sense of doom that sense of gloom and doom and negative catastrophizing is temporarily, temporarily, temporarily eradicated. See, I'll get it. I'm not even drunk and I'm talking like this. But anyway, the bottom line is look at your life and what you see is irrational, completely irrational decisions based on an immediate fix, Whereas an intelligent, non-addicted person says, I'm going to forgo this to go for what I really want. I want to get here. I don't want to go here. I want to get here. I kept going north to get south. The non-addicted person, the heavy drinker, like my friend, he saw what he wanted and adjusted his behaviors. I was not going to adjust my behaviors. I adjusted what I wanted. The addict brain and the non-addict brain work differently. An addicted person says, I want this. The addicted person says, I want this, but I'm going to eat and drink and drug and do all these things. And I'm going to adjust my goals and say, screw it. I really never, who needs you anyway? Who needed that anyway? Screw that. I don't want that. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. The non-addicted person says, I want this. So I'm going to pay the price. I'm not going to eat malamars. I'm not going to eat the pizza. Me and the dog had no pizza last night, but I'm not going to eat the pizza. I'm not going to eat those potato chips because I really want to be a dentist. And I can't be a dentist if they find out all the crazy crap I've done. I wasn't going to go tell them. See, I, I had the goods on him, but I didn't go tell him. But anyway, the bottom line, he's a good guy. I would never hurt him. But the bottom line is, is that he, the the not that this husband, number one, who's not really a, a, an alcoholic, he can adjust his behaviors to meet his goals. And we're going to find out next week that the alcoholic is going to have to adjust his goals to somehow meet his insane behavior. Okay. So before I turn it back over to you, I'm going to write down where I'm at. All right. Big book. Now, next week, this is the eighth. Eight and seven is 15, unless I'm really in trouble here. Okay. It's going to be 15. We're going to go to page 109, and we're going to start on husband number two. Okay. Now,